the first thing that I kind of want to uh, touch on with you is sort of the, the concept of training quality when it comes to hypertrophy training. Um, and to expand on that, we sort of do a lot of things or as per latest evidence-based training recommendations, there are a lot of things that we are kind of advised to do, like train with slightly higher training frequencies, take longer rest periods. And if we kind of boil it down, a lot of those things come down to having a higher um, work output, basically being able to lift more weights or do more reps. And it, it's kind of it's kind of intertwined with the idea of getting stronger. Now, how important do you think that is for someone who is training for muscle hypertrophy? Because someone could make the argument that for that purpose, all that matters is kind of just local fatigue in the muscles. And if the tension is high enough and if the muscle fibers are fatigued, then growth is being stimulated. So, yeah, how do you think about the whole concept of training high quality training sessions versus just exhausting the muscles to stimulate growth? That's a good question. Um, and I think... I think we can approach it from a couple different perspectives. So in terms of just, just in terms of like the sheer facts of how to go about stimulating hypertrophy, we don't know everything on a mechanistic basis in terms of like what's going on to actually cause muscle growth. So for example, we know that tension is important, but we don't know what say like the tension to hypertrophy dose response relationship looks like. Uh, it certainly seems like you can have too little tension to um, like adequately or maximally uh, kick off the processes that lead to uh, muscle protein synthesis and eventually hypertrophy, but we don't know kind of what the rest of that relationship looks like. Uh, you know, do you get enough tension and then it plateaus or is there kind of like a gradual upward trend over time? Um, maybe not a linear relationship, but maybe kind of like a logarithmic relationship. It's kind of hard to say. Um, so to <laughs> to answer it like purely from a scientific perspective, uh, we can't do that. And I think anyone who says we can is either lying or just doesn't know what the current limits of the evidence are. Um, so yeah, I mean, certainly some degree of training quality defined as kind of like performance is going to be important because if training quality is awful, you're probably not getting enough tension to adequately stimulate muscle protein synthesis, but we don't know kind of exactly where that threshold lies. So um, I, I think it's better to answer this question from a practical perspective. And I think from a practical perspective, it kind of depends on what someone's motivations are for going to the gym in the first place, and also what kind of limiters they have in their life. So for example, if someone... If someone's really tight on time, uh, you know, they just don't have six hours per week that they can go to the gym to work out uh, or even longer. I mean, I don't know when I'm really approaching powerlifting super seriously, I'm probably in the gym for 10, 12 hours a week. So, you know, let's say someone realistically in their schedule only has three hours a week that they can make it to the gym. Um, I don't think it would be particularly great advice to tell them like, you know, you need to rest three minutes between every set to you know, maximize your training response, because then just total weekly volume is going to plummet because they're time constrained. So for a person like that, just focusing on getting in as much work as they can within, you know, those three one hour sessions as possible, since we know volume is really important for hypertrophy, that's probably going to be the way to go. So instead of, you know, 
resting a long time between sets and making sure every set is as high of quality as possible, you might instead recommend something like antagonist supersets or supersets uh, training muscle groups that aren't going to interfere with each other. So, you know, maybe start with a superset of biceps and quads, whatever. Um, so yeah, if someone's time limited, I wouldn't necessarily worry about all that other stuff so much. And it's just like, hey, you have this fixed amount of time to train, try to get in as much as you can in that period of time, try to try to progress stuff over time, um, and just generally use your time smartly to get in work. If someone is more going to be limited maybe by motivation, then I definitely think training quality does become a lot more important on a practical level. Um, because like, <laughs> it's a lot easier to see strength progress than hypertrophy progress. So you know, if like, let's say your arms, well, so one thing just to note is that people do gain more strength and gain strength faster than the total amount of muscle they gain and the rate at which they gain muscle. So, you know, if your arms get 5% bigger, that may coincide with getting 10, 15% stronger for every arm-based exercise. Uh, so one, it's probably going to be more measurable. Um, you know, unless you're, say, getting an MRI, it's going to be hard to know with like a super high degree of accuracy that your arms have actually gotten 5% bigger, much less, you know, 1 or 2% bigger. Um, but you will probably be able to tell if you've gotten 5, 10, 15% stronger, you know, because you can just look at how much weight am I lifting? How many reps am I getting? So, you know, focusing more on training quality ultimately just makes kind of that measurement of performance more reliable. If you're, you know, always resting a pretty long time and a sufficient amount of time between sets, um, you know, you're making sure that you get the smallest possible performance decrements between sets within a workout. So it, it makes it easier for you to track performance and to know that performance is improving, which is a pretty good indication that, you know, actual muscle size is probably increasing as well. Um, and I think for a lot of people, that's good for, for keeping motivation high. So yeah, I mean, ultimately, ultimately, I think as long as people are training hard enough and consistently enough, they're probably going to be making progress over time. Um, generally, since since volume is important. Um, and since, you know, we, we know that tension is important and don't necessarily know the exact specifics of like the tension growth dose response relationship, uh, trying to keep training quality high, you know, at worst probably has a neutral effect on growth and is likely beneficial. But I think that that's probably of secondary importance to just, you know, the, the, just how hard you're training, how much effort you're putting into each set, how consistent you are with your workouts, and how long you stick with it. So uh, like on a person to person basis, I think the the details of how to get motivation and long term adherence with challenging, difficult on a per set basis training, I think those questions are probably more important than just, you know, how do you theoretically optimize things for someone who has no impediments in their life? Because most people do have some sort of impediment, whether that be, you know, actual like job stuff, family stuff, like other demands, or just sheer motivation, like how long they want to be in the gym. Right. Uh, so, so to translate this to a practical scenario, and you kind of brought up some of them, but let's take the kind of traditional bodybuilding bro. Um, a couple of years ago, before we had some of this new research, who would do a heavy set of eight, let's say, on a, on a leg press and would rest two minutes, which is not too long for um, 
compound exercise like that. Or maybe let's take a bicep curl, which is less sort of cardiovascularly taxing. So let's take that element out of it. So a heavy set of curls for a set of eight rests two minutes, let's say, which is not super long, and then drops the load by 15% or so, and then does another set of 12 or something like that. Contrast that with uh, someone who is following the latest evidence-based kind of recommendations, and he's doing a heavy set of eight on the curls, and then rests three minutes or three and a half minutes and cranks out another set of seven. Um, do you think, uh, and let's assume that their genetics are identical <laughs> just for the sake of this, uh, do you think that there would be, um, like, who would you rather bet on? Or do you think that their results would be equal in terms of muscle growth? I mean, I think in the long run, as long as both of those two sets end up being similarly challenging, I don't think there's going to be much of a difference. So so I, I do think, as far as like rest intervals go, it's interesting because there are people who have a lot of hot takes when it comes to, to rest intervals, and they're oftentimes conflicting. So you'll see people, you'll see the same person um, looking at one study and saying, oh, well, longer rest intervals are better for growth. And then they look at another study, which I think there's like literally just one longitudinal study in this area right now. Uh, and I'm blanking on the author's name, but looking at rest pause sets, um, and so like there's one study showing that, you know, over like six or eight weeks, rest pause sets led to more growth than traditional sets. And so like you can see one person mm. promoting both of those ideas. It's like, don't you realize that these things are inherently contradictory? Uh, <laughs> like with rest pause sets, you're resting like 15 seconds between sets or whatever. And you're also then recommending resting three minutes between sets. Like it's it's hard to square that circle. Um, and, and so as far as rest interval stuff goes, like I think one of the reasons that people these days tend to... So I think back in the day, the reason people recommended shorter rest intervals is like, one, helps you get through your whole workout and not have to spend all day in the gym. Two, maybe it gives you a little bit of a bigger pump. And people used to think the pump was more important than it likely probably is. Um but then the, I think the reason that kind of the narrative around rest intervals has shifted so much like in the last two years is uh, Brad Schoenfeld published a study looking at the impact of rest intervals on muscle growth. And it found that people who rested longer grew more than people who less who rested less. Uh, and I want to say it was three minutes versus like a minute and a half in that study. Uh, and so like... This isn't a knock on Brad at all. It's more a knock on people on social media who claim to be quote unquote evidence-based. Like when you see people talk about rest intervals, that's often literally the only study that will be cited. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, it's not like that's the only study on that topic that exists. And when you look at the balance of the literature, which uh, we did in a recent episode of our podcast, it's actually like super mixed. Um, there's that study and one other showing more growth with longer more growth with longer rest intervals. There's a couple studies showing slightly more growth with shorter rest intervals. And then there's one or two studies finding really no difference. Uh, and then, like I said, there's also that, um, that rest pause set study that people like to cite as well. So like, I don't know, man. I, I kind of think that of the things that one would worry about, uh, rest intervals is probably pretty low on the list in terms of 
the impact that it can have on long-term progress. And I kind of feel like I kind of feel like rest intervals matter more or less depending on what type of exercise you're doing and whether whether it's going to impact like whether you can actually put forth a high degree of effort on the next set. So for example, if you're doing a reasonably full body exercise, so, you know, think like a squat or a deadlift. Like obviously those are primarily lower body exercises, but everything's kind of under tension to support the load. Uh, if you do a hard set of like 10 squats and then you're only going to rest 45 seconds and get back under the bar for another set, the next set's just going to suck because not only are your muscles fatigued, you're still sucking wind at that point. Like unless you're really weak, you're probably still going (laughs) to be dealing with some level of cardiovascular fatigue and it's going to make the next set suck. Versus, you know, you do a set of bicep curls, you rest 30, 45 seconds, do another set of bicep curls, like maybe your performance is going to be decreased a bit, but it's not like you can't put forth a high level of effort again for the next set of curls. Like the performance may be down, but it's not like just the sheer level of effort you can put into it is decreased, you know? Um, So yeah, I I think it's, I, I do... The the model of hypertrophy that I kind of use for, for myself and my clients is, I think, a lot more simplistic than a lot of the other models floating around out there. I essentially think that as long as you're pushing pretty close to failure each set and accumulate a sufficient level, but not like a ridiculous level of local muscular fatigue within the whole training session... It's probably done what you want it to do. Um, And so I think that, for example, going back to squats, just because that can be so cardiovascularly taxing, especially for, for a pretty strong client, you limit the amount of local stress you can cause if rest intervals are too short, just because like your cardiovascular system limits performance before, say, your quads do. Um, but for example, like with a bicep curl or a tricep extension or delt raises, you don't really have that same limiter. So I think you can get away with shorter rest intervals and get just as good of results with shorter rest intervals. Um, so I, I'm more, I'm going to be more focused on the amount of effort people are putting into each set and kind of their subjective assessment of, can I put a high level of effort into this next set versus like purely how good their performance is on subsequent sets. And as far as monitoring progress goes, I care a lot more about first set performance than anything else. So for example, if someone if someone has one day in the gym where they know they have a lot of time to train and then one day where time is much tighter and let's say they're doing tricep extensions and the first day they, you know, let's say they do 50 pounds for a set of 10, they rest for three minutes, they get a set of, they get another set of 10, they rest for three minutes, they get a set of nine. And then the next day they come in, they use the same weight, but they only have like 45 seconds to rest between sets just because they don't have as much time in their schedule for that day. And instead of going 10, 10, 9, they go like 12, 9, five or something. I would personally look at those as probably being similarly effective as far as stimulating muscle growth goes, assuming that each of those three sets was taken to a similar proximity to failure. And I would personally see that as progress from the first session to the second session, because in that first set, when they were fresh, they got more reps in their first set, even if their total performance across all three sets was decreased because 
rest intervals were decreased. As far as like monitoring stuff as a coach goes, it's nice if someone has a super consistent schedule and they can like make sure that rest intervals are the same every single time. So you can look and say, you know, across this entire exercise, how did performance do? But in terms of if a client needs to change something, I don't worry much at all about whether they need to change rest intervals and if that impacts like performance on the second, third, fourth set of an exercise, because I see that as a, a vastly secondary variable to like, is exercise selection good? Are you performing the reps properly? And are you putting a high level of effort into each set? Awesome. So basically rest as long to where the limiting factor in your performance is going to be local factors in the muscle as opposed to things like cardiovascular fatigue and just being gassed out. Would that be a fair conclusion? For the most part. So th this is this is incredibly subjective, but I, I do think, so I think you need to be recovered enough that your muscles feel like they can do something at the start of a set. So like, for example, if you've, if, if someone has ever done a very light set of bench press to failure, where, you know, let's say you fail on rep 30, you know that just like, subjectively, rep one feels fresh, rep 15, you know, maybe you're starting to feel a little bit of fatigue, but it still feels like you're doing basically the same exercise. And then by rep 28, it's it's weird. Like, <laughs> your muscles just don't feel like they're contracting in the same way anymore. Just be just because so much fatigue is built up. So I would say probably rest long enough that the first few reps of the set still feel like normal normal executions of that exercise. Um, and otherwise, yeah, you're probably fine. And, and I mean, like, I think in general, as long as you're getting at least like five, six reps per set, um, you, you're just simply not going to be starting each set in a super, super fatigued state because you, you have to have some level of freshness to get multiple reps. So yeah, like don't, I would say don't treat every exercise as if it's a rest pause set where, you know, maybe by the last set, you're only getting two reps. But as long as you're getting a substantial number of reps per set uh, and you feel like you are being limited by the muscle slash muscles you're trying to train, versus just general cardiovascular fitness, then yeah, I think you're, I think you're fine. Perfect. So on the theme of uh, training quality, uh, there is sort of a, a camp on the internet, a training camp that is kind of going against the emphasis on higher volumes and is very much emphasizing the importance of first, just get out as much from every single repetition and from every single set as possible and only then worry about adding more sets on top of that. Now, um, it's interesting because I had recently a really awesome roundtable conversation with Eric Helms and Mike Isratel, and there Eric pointed out that basically there are two camps, if you look at the elite level bodybuilders, for example, where one camp, such as Jeff Alberts would be a good example of this, is getting a ton of fatigue, but also a ton of stimulus from a very low amount of volume. And then there is this other camp, such as Doug Miller, who does a crap ton of volume and tolerates it just fine and also grows like a weed. And kind of those two extremes tend to make up the elite level of kind of the people that you're seeing on the stage. Uh, is this something that you tend to see as well? I mean, I know you're not following bodybuilding per se that closely, but do you tend to see this as well that um, those two extremes tend to make up the elite uh, level lifters? Kind of, yeah. I mean, so th this, this may be kind of like punting or like capitulating on the question. But I kind of I, I think that to a large degree, 
Um, I think that just like troubleshooting training style is super, super important. Uh, so as someone who, as someone who doesn't really have a dog in that fight, uh, actually, I don't think I'm supposed to say that anymore. Uh, as someone who doesn't have a horse in this race, um, (laughs) I, I think that, I think that like, we don't know that much about in terms of like on a scientific level, we don't know that much about factors that contribute to someone responding better to one training style or another. However, there is research very much suggesting that some people do respond better to one training style or another. So one of the early papers that looked at that was by Beaven and colleagues, B-E-A-V-E-N. And so the design of the study was interesting, but the measures were were kind of poor quality, unfortunately. But basically what they did is they took a group of rugby players, they put them through four different workouts, and they looked to, they looked at the acute testosterone to cortisol response uh, in each of those four workouts. And half of them, they put them on the workout that elicited the quote-unquote best to acute testosterone to cortisol response. Uh, and half of them, they put them on the particular workout that gave those individuals the quote unquote worst testosterone to cortisol response. And so they did it by individual, like not by group. So for example, uh, I think, and I could be slightly wrong here, but I should be close enough. I think the workouts were like five sets of four at 80%, uh, three sets of 10 at 70%, four or five sets of 15 at like 60%, give or take, and then essentially like a deload. So like three sets of five at 50%, something like that. Uh, and so like they they got each of those acute responses for the individuals, uh, started with half of them on the, pr- the protocol that gave them the best testosterone to cortisol response, half of them on the protocol that gave them the worst testosterone to cortisol response. And then after either three or four weeks, they did a crossover. So the, the people who started with the program that gave them the worst testosterone to cortisol response switched to the one that gave them their best testosterone to cortisol response and vice versa. Um, And what they found in that study is, I believe they looked at both some strength measure. Uh, I wouldn't want to venture what it was because I haven't reread that study in probably two or three years. Um, But they looked at some strength measure and then they also... Uh, assessed just scale weight as a proxy for hypertrophy, which isn't a particularly great proxy, but that's what they had. Um, and they found that the the people training on the protocols that gave them like the best individual testosterone to cortisol response gained a pretty substantial amount of strength and also scale weight within three weeks and or three or four weeks. And then the people who trained on like the quote unquote bad protocol for them, um, generally didn't improve performance and also like either had flat scale weight or possibly even lost weight over the short term. Uh, I emailed the the author about that because it didn't give a breakdown of like, you know, how many people had the best T to C response with maybe those two two the two protocols that looked kind of like hypertrophy training how many had like the best response with the other ones uh it, there wasn't a breakdown of that in the study so i emailed him and asked like hey like were, were people represented in all four of these protocols in terms of like best and worst t to c responses just to make sure that it wasn't just you know essentially just filtering everyone into the like hypertrophy looking protocols um and he was like no like there were people who had their best and worst response to all four of the protocols um so yeah study was interesting but not incredibly informative because it was short term and didn't take the best measures more recently there was another study 
um, by Jones and colleagues that did something incredibly similar, um, but instead of looking at acute testosterone to cortisol responses, they looked at genetic profiles. Uh, they didn't explain exactly how they did that in the study, but very similar type thing. It was a crossover design. People were put on a training program that either matched their genetic profile or didn't match it. Uh, and then there was a crossover midway through the study to, you know, put the people who initially started on the like unmatched uh, workout on the one that matched their genetic profile and vice versa. Uh, and they saw very, very similar res uh, results in that study as well. It's from 2015, I believe. Um, and then, I mean, just in general, there's other research looking at uh, individual individual genes. So one I know just right off the top of my head is your ACE gene, ACE, A-C-E. Um, one, so what they found is that if you have one particular version of that allele, uh, your results to training seem to be pretty volume dependent. So like doing multiple sets of training yields more strength gains, more muscle growth than just doing single sets. If you have another version of that allele, you seem to get just as good of results with single sets as you would multiple sets. Um, so like th there's... There's not enough research to tell us like granularly, we know for sure that this individual is going to do best with really high volumes, like doing a ton of sets per week. And this individual and this individual is going to do better with lower volume, just, you know, take one or two sets all the way to failure, maybe even pass failure. And that's what they'll respond best to. But there is enough research, I would say at this point, to indicate that those sort of things could happen, um, like just different responses to training based on individuals physiologies or possibly their genotypes so yeah i mean like i think it's i think it's plausible as hell that there are two very effective training styles and you know maybe one is really good for someone else and really bad for someone else and if i had to pick probably the two dominant factors of kind of what would lead to that polarized relationship. It is probably just like effort per set and then just total training volume. Some people, they need total training volume to be high, but if they push too close to failure every set or, you know, do intensity techniques that take them past failure or anything like that, you know, they start really fatiguing and breaking down. But if they keep a couple reps in the tank and just do an ass load of sets, that's great for them. I can definitely see that being the case for some people. And then for other folks, if they do a ton of, and I think the second one is me, by the way, if I do a ton of sets, I feel like trash no matter what. Like I've, I've tried to do it for, for like months at a time, hoping I would adapt to it. I just didn't. But if I, you know, if I'm trying to like grow a particular muscle group and I just do like two really, really hard sets, taking them all the way to failure, uh, I feel good. I don't wear down and I grow pretty well. So like that's been my personal experience. So yeah, I, I think that effort per set and total volume are probably the two most important factors. You probably need some level of both of them, but <laughs> if you try to maximize both of them at all times, you're going to run into tough sledding. So I, I think that a lot of people just will naturally gravitate to one or the other. Uh, and I wouldn't necessarily say one or the other is necessarily better or worse for everyone, but probably would be better or worse for certain individuals. Hey guys, sorry, just a short interruption. Mainly doing this because people have been asking me a lot in private messages on Instagram and Facebook and email whether I'm doing online coaching and the answer is actually yes. Maybe I've been doing a bad job promoting this so far, but in each video description, if you go to the show notes, you will always see a Calendly link there 
where you can book a free call, where we can chat on a call for up to 45 minutes. We can talk about your goals, what you would like to achieve, and whether or not you and I are a good fit for a coach-client relationship and can effectively work together to achieve your goals in the most efficient way possible. So if that is something of interest to you, then you can check the show notes wherever you're listening or watching this. There will be a Calendly link where you can just book that free call and we can move forward from there. So that's all I had to say for now. Let's continue with the show. Do you think that um, kind of aches and pains and your tendency to kind of uh, just accumulate injuries is a good proxy to determine that for yourself? I mean, not that you should intentionally get yourself injured just to test this, but you know, like you could say, well, just test it out, which works best for you. But if you're a reasonably advanced person, then just seeing what works best for you might take a, an entire year, you know, or at least a couple yeah. of months. So like, how, how do you think you can test it for yourself in the short term, which one you are? I mean, I think the easiest thing to do is just look back at your logbook. Um, <laughs> I mean, so if you haven't been training for very long, then it shouldn't take you that long to be able to test one training style against another. Like you can probably see some level of measurable progress within three or six months. Um, and if you have been training for a long time, hopefully you haven't been training the exact same way for a decade straight. Uh, if you have, you're more patient than me, I just get bored. But, uh, you know, assuming you've been training for a pretty long period of time, hopefully you've been keeping a log and you have notes and you can just look back and see like, you know, when was I making consistent progress? Uh, when was I avoiding injury? And what did my training look like at the time? And I think that like, I think, I think that that's probably going to be your best indicator. Um, otherwise, I mean, yeah, I think, I think in the short term, I think in the short term, really just like subjective assessments are, are the best you can do. Um, if I don't know. So, so this is going to sound like total bullshit to someone who maybe has only been training a couple months, but will probably make complete sense to people who've been training for a number of years. Sometimes you just know your training is good and sometimes it's not. Like every time you go in the gym, you do a particular exercise, you can feel your muscles working the way you want them to. Uh, you can like, you can fatigue your muscles the way you want them to. And the next time you come back and train that same muscle or same exercise, things feel great again. And, you know, maybe you get another rep or two in the process. Like, I think that people who have trained for a number of years with a number of training styles can, can get a pretty good feel of that within a couple weeks. Um, you know, and, and maybe it's going to take you six months or a year to see any measurable progress because you have been training for so long. But I mean, I think that within like a month or so, if you're decent at listening to your body, you can have a pretty good idea of if the way you're currently training is agreeing with you or not. Right. Uh, speaking of progress, um, you know, being a, a, a late stage intermediate or advanced or especially an elite level lifter, I'm by those, I just mean relative to your own potential, of course. So it's kind of a bitch in the sense that progress is just so much less linear and predictable than when you were a novice or early stage in intermediate. So uh, for someone who is training for hypertrophy, and the reason I'm emphasizing that is because obviously if you're a strength athlete, that might look a bit differently because you have, I don't know, I don't even know what you guys do, like peaking protocols and tapers and accumulation blocks and stuff like that. But if you're training for hypertrophy, uh, what do you think is a, an appropriate rate of strength gains that someone should be uh, looking at? Like um, I threw out some numbers before, like, I don't know, one 
for an intermediate, like one or 2% from workout to workout. And then for an advanced lifter, maybe like one or 2%, you know, per like mesocycle, like every month or so. So like, uh, what, what do you think are realistic numbers here to, to look at? Oh, I don't know, man. I mean, like r- rates of progress are so ridiculously variable that if you say like one to 2%, it could very reasonably be 4% for a tenth of people and a quarter of a percent for a tenth of people, which, you know, then that's a fifth of people who you've given dramatically wrong, uh, dramatically wrong numbers to. So, I mean, for me personally, I think that like, I just think progress is precious no matter what rate it's occurring at. Um, and ultimately like, I think that having arbitrary targets almost always does more harm than good because, if you give something that that even if it's an incredibly accurate average, then un, unless you're dealing with something where the variance in outcomes or variance in rates is incredibly small, if you give an average, there, you know, are, are assuming it's not like a dramatically skewed distribution. There's going to be about half of people who aren't going to be able to meet that average. And there's going to be about half of people who do or who could do dramatically better or who could do at least some degree better than that average. And so I think that kind of centralizing things around numbers that people use as benchmarks is going to leave a pretty large number of people quite disappointed and a pretty large number of people um, either arrogant or complacent. Arrogant if they're making way faster progress than that and they're like, haha, uh, I must be just training way better and way smarter than everyone else when it's like, no, you probably just picked better parents. Um, Or complacent if, you know, they're happy to be making average progress, which they've told they should shoot for, when they could be making substantially better progress. So for me, I don't I don't worry about that stuff at all. Um, I think just as, as long as something measurable is occurring at least every month or so, like things are fine. Because even if you have really slow monthly progress, that still adds up to a lot over time. So, you know, like let's say the smallest increment you can go up and wait is two and a half kilos. Uh, and let's say you you add two and a half kilos to your squat in two months. So like that feels that feels pretty slow, right? Like doesn't seem like that much has occurred. Um, but then, you know, that's what, 15 kilos in a year? It's not bad. It's, I think in pounds. So that's like 30, that's like 30, 35 pounds in a year. That's good. Like you do that three years straight, you've put uh you put 90 kilos on your squat or like 100 pounds on your squat. That's that's tremendous. Um, but that also, in the short term, seems like a really slow rate of progress. Just two and a half kilos every two months. Uh, so, you know, as long as, you know, if you look back at your logbook and it's been four months since you've added a rep to anything, you got a problem. If you are pretty consistently adding a little bit of weight or a couple reps here and there, to most of the exercises you're doing, I think you're on the right track. Um, Or, you know, if you're adding a lot of weight or a lot of reps to all of your exercises really like pretty consistently, you're definitely on the right track and probably have great genetics. Uh, But ultimately to me, as long as progress is being made, if you extend that out over a period of months or years, it adds up to phenomenal process o- progress over time. And that's all I care about. Um, Just as long as you're better than you were not too too long ago i think you're on the right track yeah yeah and just to clarify probably i just phrased the question uh wrong but 
what I was curious about is like, what are kind of the time frames that people should be looking at once they are like reasonably trained? Because obviously, when you're a novice, then every single workout, the goal is to be the logbook. And like, maybe it won't happen all the time. And there's still some variability there. But that's not a, an unreasonable expectation. But like for someone who has been training for 10 years, the goal cannot be every single workout. Like, okay, last last session, I benched 120 kilos for eight reps. Now I'm going to do 122.5, right? So like what are reasonable timeframes to revisit the logbook and see like, okay, is this going in the right direction? So like, I don't know, like if we can just very generally categorize people into intermediate, advanced, beginner, which is I know way too broad of a categorization, but like that's where I was kind of going to but it, it is still just hard to say because there's there's so much variance in how quickly people improve i mean someone who has really garbage genetics very well could be only making measurable progress once every three months when they've only been training for a year which you know would still be kind of like beginner intermediate ish um but but it's an advanced lifter then isn't it <laughs> technically i mean i wouldn't say so i don't i don't give a shit what you call people honestly um i mean i i think i think ultimately um i mean i don't know man i i I just don't I just don't care about any of that. Uh just as as long as people are making progress and it's not taking them a year and a half to add one rep to one exercise, I think they're fine, you know. Yeah. And I, I like so if we categorize it just by how long people have been training, maybe someone's been dicking around in the gym for 10 years, but they're still basically a beginner lifter because it was 10 years of incredibly ineffective, very easy training. Uh so like Obviously, there's people, there's a lot of people who fall through the cracks if you use that method of categorization. If you do it by how long it takes to progress, then, you know, you could have people who have great genetics and have been training for three or four years who are still making pretty quick progress, but they're they're clearly not beginners or early intermediates anymore. Like, they're a pretty advanced lifter. They just have great genetics. Or someone who, again, has trash genetics, and they've only been training for six months or a year, and progress is already pretty slow. I'm not going to say that person's an advanced lifter, because they're not. Um, so... <laughs> Like, I don't know, like pe people are people. And the longer I am in this game, the the less and less I'm interested in trying to categorize folks. Um, if you had to choose a categor categorization method, I would say like total years spent of hard and generally effective training. But then that's also super subjective because like, you know, the guy who has just been dicking around for 10 years probably has only been still been in the gym for 10 years because he thinks he knows what he's doing you know so like i don't know i th that's just not something i really ever put much thought into because i just don't think it's that useful right i can tell that i did not get myself into your heart with this question <laughs> so we will just move on <laughs> no no it, it's fine i mean i i know that if anyone's out of step here it's me i i have put out like categorizations before and whatnot uh, i know that's kind of the language that everyone uses to discuss this. It's just as more and more time goes on, uh, the less I think it is either useful or appropriate. Um, but but I know that I'm the weird one here, not you. <laughs> sure, sure. Fair enough. Uh, okay, so moving on from then, then uh, what do you think of the idea of adding sets 
uh, to your workouts uh, or to your program week to week or just as a means of progression in general versus focusing more on reps or weight and increasing the training stimulus that way. So basically increasing workout volume and within that in the most direct way workout set volume um, or do you think it's just kind of um, just one other way to increase the stimulus and it's not inherently better or worse? Uh, what do you think? Um... So, I mean, I think that I think it depends on what time scale you're talking about. Um, if you're talking about how are you going to try to progress training week to week, I I wouldn't go for adding sets week to week. Um, th that would do one of two things. If you're just like linearly adding sets, eventually you just wind up at a training volume that is ridiculously high and completely inappropriate. If it's something more like you're, you're waving sets over time, so, you know, maybe over three or six weeks or whatever, you're starting a reasonably low number of sets, you're going up to a higher and higher number of sets, and then you drop back. I mean, I think that... I, so I think if you look at kind of like the volume versus rate of hypertrophy relationship as something like a hormetic curve or like an inverted U relationship, you have some some theoretical level of volume that is the best for you, whether that's like across all exercises or just for a particular exercise or muscle group or whatever. If you conceptualize it as something like an inverted U relationship, which I do, um, there is some level of volume that is the most appropriate for you that's going to give you the best rate of progress over the short to medium term. And so I think that if you're if you're like waving the number of sets that you're doing and let's say it's a three week wave and for a particular exercise, like four sets is theoretically the best number of sets for you. And you do week one, three sets, week two, four sets, week three, five sets. I think that would be fine. Like if four is best, three is probably okay. Five is probably a little too much, but not way too much. And if that's just how you like to set up your training, cool. I think that would be perfectly fine. I think if four is like the theoretical optimal number for you and that wave is going from like two sets to six sets, that's probably a little bit worse than three to five. If it's going from one set to seven sets, that's probably quite bad because then you're spending at least two, three, four weeks training with levels of volume that are either way too low or way too high to be optimal for you. Um, so, so I would generally, I generally wouldn't fiddle with a number of sets on a week to week basis for a couple of reasons. One, I think that, um, one, I think just on a practical basis, people kind of like to know what they're getting into when they go into the gym. Um, and even if it is just, you know, starting a wave at three sets, ending at five sets, that's still going to be a 66% increase in total training volume and probably total time in the gym as well. So, you know, maybe like week one, your workouts take an hour, week three, they take an hour 40. Uh, some people have that type of flexibility in their schedule, but like busy students or like working professionals with families, like very well may not have that amount of flexibility in their schedule to say like, Oh, some days I'm training an hour, some days I'm training two and a half over the course of like a six week wave. So, so I think that there's some practical limitations. And then I also just think that like, I don't, I don't see that it adds any benefit over finding a level of volume that is appropriate for you and just kind of rolling with it. So I, I, I don't think it adds much. And I think that there are some practical drawbacks. So as far as adding sets go, I see that as more of a like, 
intermediate to long-term approach of progressing training. So just on a week-to-week basis, like find a, a level of like set volume per week per exercise that is appropriate. I, I'm not even going to worry about whether it's like theoretically optimal. I don't think that's a very useful consideration, but just find something that does let you progress um, like on a, on a pretty reasonable time span. And then when that stops working, like when you do eventually plateau, just like kind of take inventory and see like, okay, I'm not making progress. Uh, I'm not growing. I'm not adding weight. I'm not adding reps anymore, but I feel good. I feel fresh, like nothing super creaky or achy. Sleep quality's fine. Appetite's fine. I don't have any clear indicators that I'm overreaching. Then at that point, it is probably just you have adapted to, to the type of training you've been doing and you need to increase the stimulus. So a very reasonable way to do that is to add more sets. So, you know, maybe you stick with the same general set volume for six months, a year, maybe even longer. And then when you do plateau, add more sets. Uh, or maybe you hit that plateau, kind of take inventory and you're like, man, I feel like shit. Uh, <laughs> like I'm not making progress. My sleep quality is terrible. I never have an appetite. I feel groggy and fatigued all the time. Then like it very well could just be that like the, the training you've been doing, even though set volumes haven't gone up, um, like the sheer amount of stress you can put on yourself on a per set basis has trended up. And so maybe at that point, the way to make progress is actually to decrease set volume a little bit. And I kind of think this gets back to uh, a question you asked previously about some people kind of trending towards more intense but fewer sets over time and some people trending to higher and higher volumes over time. I think that's where that path kind of starts splitting. Like you start with kind of a happy medium program. And then some people, when they plateau, it's like, damn it, I need more sets. I still feel really fresh. Ramp up the volume, baby. And some people, they're already feeling worn down from that program they were doing. So they trim some of the fat off of their program and just make the sets they are doing more and more intense. And then like that's where that road would kind of fork. Um, so yeah, I, I, would, I would mess around with number of sets more on an intermediate to long-term scale versus on a week-to-week basis right um now speaking of which another kind of hot topic um and as per once again this giant round table i just had recently with these guys what do you think about the idea of uh, using muscle soreness as a proxy to determine whether uh, our training stimulus is adequate or maybe we should be doing more um sort of a, a funny conversational uh, piece from that roundtable was when I said that, look, like, I like the idea and concept that if you're not sore, that means that you should be upping your training volume. But I literally experimented with pushing up my training volume as high as I could tolerate it. And I was doing like over 40 sets for most of my upper body musculature. And those were like legitimate, only one rep in the tank type sets. And I was starting to kind of subjectively experience some signs of overreaching on like a global level. But I I was still not sore because my experience is is that once I'm used to a given movement pattern, I can just overload the crap out of that movement, both in terms of volume and load, and I will not get sore anymore. But I know other people that are the complete opposite. Um, what have you seen on that front, and what do you think? Uh, I think pretty much what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that there's that there are very different res- like soreness responses to training for uh, for people who have a few months of experience like first session in the gym everyone gets super sore that's a that's essentially a universal thing but yeah like talking to people um who have been training for a number of years 
Some folks, by the time they were in the gym for six months, like nothing ever got sore again, unless they took a lot of time off training. Some people, you know, they still get sore, at least in some muscle groups, basically every session. So I think for the people who do still get quite sore. I don't know. Maybe it's a useful proxy. I don't have any personal experience on that because I'm one of the folks that as long as I am like consistently in the gym, not cycling in a bunch of new exercises, I just don't get sore. Um, I would like to think I've made progress over the years <laughs> though. So for, for me, uh, soreness would have been a dog shit indicator. Uh, it would have told me after two months in the gym, never have I made progress ever since, uh, which obviously isn't the case. So like, I don't know for people who do get, who do still get sore from training. Maybe that is a somewhat useful indicator. I personally don't have experience to speak to that. And I don't think the research really supports that idea all that much. Um, I would kind of, I would add soreness in with just like kind of the subjective assessment that I talked about in responding to the last question though. So like, you know, if you reach the point where you've plateaued, you still feel fresh, you don't have a bunch of aches and pains, no sign of overreaching or whatever. And also you you either aren't getting sore anymore or maybe are getting substantially less sore than you once did, then maybe you could add that in as like a tertiary indicator that maybe you need to in increase volume, but it wouldn't be like a leading indicator. And then vice versa as well. Um, you know, you've plateaued, you're experiencing signs that that suggest you may be overreaching or overtraining. And now you're also maybe getting way more sore from training than you used to. Maybe that's a sign you need to pull back a little bit. Um, but it would be, yeah, I, I would use it at, if I used it at all, which I don't, but if I did, it would be like a tertiary or like quaternary indicator, not like a primary or secondary indicator. Right. Awesome. So um, one thing that is uh, kind of uh, tied in, like, uh, like I mentioned, like you, once I'm adapted to a certain movement, nothing gets me sore, but adding in a new movement will get me sore. Um, and there is sort of one line of thinking that suggests that adding in a new movement pattern and sort of inducing new exercise or increased exercise variety is kind of opening up a new pathway pathway for growth um so i don't know if you've been like doing front squats and split squats and back squats for your quads let's say and now you add in leg presses or lunges or something new it kind of opens up a new pathway for growth um and it also happens to correlate with increased soreness so would you agree with this uh, with or without the soreness factor that that's sort of a potential uh, avenue oh yeah for sure um i think that so i i think that there's two potentially different questions here one is it, might it cause more just overall growth? Like let's say measured in terms of like you're doing leg exercises, you just look at like lower body lean mass. Or if you had a way to assess like total lower body muscle volume. Uh, so that's one question. And the next question is like, might it cause growth that your current bevy of exercises would be unable to go about causing? To answer the first question, I'm really not sure. Um, I think that there are absolutely practical reasons to cycle exercises over time. Um, I think that it's it's reasonably plausible that it could decrease um, kind of like chronic overuse type injury risk over time, just shifting up the motor patterns you're doing a little bit. Um, and I also think that, uh, you know, it can just keep training fun and interesting. Um, some people just get bored if they do training that looks too similar all the time for months on end. Uh, and, you know, people like seeing measurable progress. And 
If you sub in a new exercise, you're probably going to be able to make progress on it for at least a couple months. That may not be progress indicating you are actually you know, growing more muscle. It could just be that you're adapting to the new exercise, you're learning the movement pattern, etc. Um, but it can keep motivation high because, you know, the actual numbers you're doing are going up, and that's fun. So I think there are practical reasons you may want to do that. Uh, does it actually increase rate of overall muscle growth? I don't know. I'm kind of agnostic about it. Um, however, the second question is, might it cause some level of muscle growth that your current uh, group of exercises is unable to. And, and to that, I think it certainly could. So there's there's some level of research looking at um, like local, local EMG responses to different exercises. So if you went back five years ago and certainly 10 years ago, um, if you say threw out the idea of, oh, this exercise targets my inner pecs and this exercise targets my outer pecs, all of like the... All of the like bro bodybuilders would be like, hell yeah, brother. And all of the sciencey people would be like, no, that's bro science. You can't do that. Um, but <laughs> as more and more research has come out looking at like re regional muscle activation with different exercises, we are seeing that that is actually a thing. Um, that certain exercises do target different areas of different muscles. Um, there is less research looking to see whether that actually equates to longitudinal differences in hypertrophy, but the handful of studies out there that do look at longitudinal hypertrophy do find that, okay, like, yeah, some of these exercises are probably causing, like, different differences in regional hypertrophy than other exercises that target the same muscle group. So, you know, it, it very well could be that if you sub out, I don't know, step-ups for split squats or something like that, it helps grow, like, a slightly different region of your quads that the step-ups were doing a poor job at. It, does that necessarily equate to greater overall quad growth over time? I'm not sure. Maybe so. Um, does it really give you anything that just using a variety of exercises all the time wouldn't give you? Also not sure about that. So, for example... If so, if you're a powerlifter, like this is super common. If you're a powerlifter, probably all of the hamstring training you do is like deadlifts, RDLs, and you know maybe like some some tertiary hamstring activation from squatting. Even though squatting isn't a great hamstring exercise, that's something that's you know I think that that probably applies to 90% of powerlifters. Uh, virtually all of the hamstring work you get is just pure hip extension. I very much think that if all the hamstring work you do is hip extension work. If you add in leg curls as well, that will probably boost total hamstring growth, but will, you know, say cycling between RDLs for a block and then uh, leg curls for a block and then RDLs for a block and leg curls for a block. Will that lead to more total hamstring growth than just doing leg curls and RDLs all the time? I don't know. I don't really think so. So I, I don't know. I, I think that um, I think it's definitely a good idea to include different exercises for all of your muscle groups on some time scale or another, whether that's, you know, all together within a training block or cycling through them block to block. Um, I, I, like I said, I think that's probably a good idea from a chronic injury standpoint and, and probably from like a overall well-rounded muscular development standpoint. Um, will it actually lead to more total growth over time? I don't know. Kind of skeptical, uh, but I, I don't think it would hurt growth over time. Right. So since you mentioned injury uh, in the in the end, 
this is something I kind of heard you address on a recent uh, Stronger by Science uh, Q&A, um, but maybe specifically uh, addressing this in the context of someone training for muscle growth, uh, just because there's just so much leeway there in terms of light loads, heavy loads, like what kinds of bullshit exercises that we can do and still make it effective. Um, how important do you think it is to have pre-planned deloads and lighter training periods versus just kind of auto-regulating your training and, you know, like having some, like, I don't know, if you don't feel up to it, just doing some lighter pump work in the gym or maybe changing up the rep range or picking a different exercise if your elbows are nagging you just doing something that doesn't involve heavy pressing or pulling stuff like that like could you virtually like never take a period of lighter dedicated training period or do you think that there is um, an inherent value in that and injury risk is coming with a vengeance if, if someone is never uh, purposefully deloading for a dedicated period i think it depends how good you are at bashing your head into a wall um <laughs> so i i think that if you are someone who is fine with your training being somewhat flexible and you're reasonably good at listening to your body. I don't necessarily think you need to pre-plan deloads. Um, days you're just not feeling it, you know, take an easier day of training. And, you know, maybe that one easier day is enough to put you on the right track. You wouldn't necessarily need a full week of deloading. Um, if you're like, if a particular exercise isn't agreeing with you, you're pretty flexible. You can sub that out for something else and just keep rolling and you're fine. So I, I think if you're good at listening to your body and you're good at being flexible with your approach to training, you don't necessarily need to pre-plan deload periods. I think if you're someone who doesn't like being flexible and you're not great at listening to your body, and like I said, if you're good at just ramming your head into a wall repeatedly, even if something isn't doesn't feel particularly right, it's it's on it's on the sheet of paper, goddammit, and you're gonna do it. I think for someone wired like that, pre-planning deloads are a pretty good prophylactic approach to just <laughs> minimizing damage you can do to yourself. Um, so, you know, if you pre-plan a deload every four weeks, basically the, the gambit you're working with then is, uh, can, can I be dumb enough in these four weeks to hurt myself before I rest and recover on my deload week? And like, probably not. Um, injuries in the gym are fairly rare and especially like really bad injuries in the gym are pretty rare and are, are probably the result of uh, issues that like accumulate over time that people just ignore and then eventually the dam breaks. Um, and so like, yeah, if you're, if you're kind of dumb and stubborn, um, <laughs> having scheduled deloads can help kind of push that off or, or maybe like prevent it altogether for, for a pretty long period of time. Um, so yeah, in general, I don't necessarily think everyone needs to have pre-planned scheduled deloads in their training program. But if you know you're someone who's kind of stubborn and uh, you're you're good at ignoring the signs your body is trying to send you, then uh, scheduling deloads is probably a pretty good idea. Absolutely. Makes sense. And the very, very last uh, question, uh, feel free to answer this as briefly or elaborately as, as you wish, but what do you kind of think about kind of intuitive training or training by feel for someone whose goal is, is to build muscle? And, you know, I'm kind of thinking of a more advanced level who is not going to do something like blatantly stupid, like it's not going to jump his volume from 10 sets if that's what seems to be the appropriate dose for him to like 35 from one week to the next because like, ah, I just feel like doing that right now but knows his kind of volume landmarks pretty well, knows kind of what exercises fit him. 
to just not even necessarily track his training, just focus on intensity of effort, going in there, exerting him, him or herself on each exercise, and just trusting that that is the driver of growth and over time that's going to do the job. Uh, what do you think about that? I don't think that's a terrible idea, but I would still track things for sure. Um, so I, I think that... I think that you kind of need to put in the time to earn the right to do intuitive training, I would say, because if you're someone who's been in the gym for eight, 10 years, you probably have a pretty decent idea of what doesn't mess you up and what does help you make progress. And so if you're if you're training by feel and by intuition, you probably do kind of wind up in in a general place that's probably going to be pretty effective. Uh, or at minimum, you know, it, you you should, I guess, almost by definition, be doing things that you kind of enjoy or at least you don't really hate. Um, and it gives you more agency over your training. So, you know, it, it's probably not a bad idea for adherence as well for a lot of people. Um, I, I think that it would be a pretty bad idea for someone who hasn't been training for a pretty long period of time. Uh, because in general, if you look at the research on how hard people train when they're self-directed versus like, you know, when they have research staff pushing them to train as hard as they should be, the vast majority of people are just pretty fucking lazy. Um, and if they don't have a structured program or they're not trying to beat the logbook every week and they don't have something to push them, most people are probably going to just kind of phone it in and not train nearly as hard as they should be. Uh, from my experience coaching like high school and collegiate athletes, there's also a lot of people who are the opposite way where you, you have to rein them in because if left to their own devices, they would train themselves into a pile of dust. So I think that um, I think that <laughs> Just simply by surviving in the game for a decade, you've probably, you, you, one, you're probably someone who's good at, you know, training hard enough, but not training so hard you you mess yourself up. Like, the, both of those groups of people probably wash out over time. And also, if you're, like, mentally engaged in the process, you do kind of know, like, okay, this has been effective for me in the past. Uh, I haven't probably been training with quite as much volume as I should be. Let's, like, make a point of ramping it up a little bit. I don't have this pre-planned, but I I do know I probably need to be doing a little bit more or vice versa like that that's you have earned those intuitions you've learned them and earned them uh so yeah I, I think that for a really well-trained population it can absolutely work uh for someone with less experience I would be super leery about it um and I think it also just depends on kind of someone's psychological profile um so when some people are given more freedom and agency they love it uh they they're going to train harder and push themselves more. It's just more motivating to them. And then for people who like just a lot more structure and being told what to do, whether, you know, that's hiring a coach or just they write the workout themselves, but then when they're at the gym, the logbook is telling them what to do. Uh, they just like that a lot more. So, you know, it, it would probably need to be someone who has the, the right psychological profile for it and who has been training for long enough to do it effectively. But I think if you meet both of those two criterias, um, intuitive training can work just fine. Absolutely. That was that was a great response. I, I don't do that myself, by the way, just for the record. <laughs> I don't think I've earned that yet. Intuitive eating, yes, but not intuitive training. So, um, yeah, Greg, thank you so much. You answered basically all my questions uh, that I planned. We skipped out on a couple of tangents, which could have been interesting. But in the interest of time, we are going to wrap it up there. So thank you so much. And, yeah, just... Um, 
please let people know where they can find you and anything new that you have coming up and stuff like that. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for having me back on. Um, for people who want to check out my stuff, articles are on strongerbyscience.com. If you want to check out the podcast, I promise um, my co-host or actually the full-time host with me being the temporary guest host, uh, he's much better spoken than I am. Uh, that's Eric Trexler. You can find the podcast at sbspod.com or just search Stronger by Science podcast on whatever podcast app you use. They are also uploaded to YouTube. Um, and if you want to check out the research review that I put out every month along with Eric Helms, Eric Trexler, and Mike Sordos, that's called Mass Monthly Applications in Strength Sport, and that is strongerbyscience.com slash mass. If you want to follow along on social media, I am probably most active on Instagram these days, and my handle is just my name, Greg Knuckles. Perfect. Greg, thank you so much again. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for having me on. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, then please, once again, consider dropping a five-star rating on iTunes. It would mean a lot to me and it would be truly helpful. And if you're interested in more cool stuff, then you could visit my YouTube channel. If you type in Sustainable Self-Development Podcast there or even SSD Podcast, it will come up. And if you're interested in working together with me, then you can check out the Calendly link in the show description. There you can book a free call with me. We can hop on that call, chat about your goals, challenges, determine if we are a good fit. And if that is the case, then we could be working together going forward to get you to the results that you want. So that's all I had to say for today. I hope you enjoyed this once again. And with that, see you next time.